When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange Podcast. Stories by leaders for leaders to help you raise the bar on your own excellence to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's podcast. Greetings. This is Hugh Ballou and Russell Dennis for this edition of the Nonprofit Exchange. And we're here every week interviewing leaders about their challenges, their successes, and, you know, what are some things we wish we'd re- rethought, and how do we treat those situations as learning opportunities? Because I'm 73, and I'm still learning. I don't know about you, Russ. You're a lot younger than me, right? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe not a whole lot, but I'm still learning things just the same, and that's good. I've got another 15 years before everything shuts down, at least, anyway, mm-hmm. so... And it's good to be here, and uh, we are switching over. We've had about 60 degrees. We're expecting some snow tonight here in uh, Denver. So that's it. It just keeps moving. And we're in for a treat because we we don't get to talk to many people whose work is around protecting the environment and keeping clean spaces. We don't get to 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 see that. And, you know, strange phenomena like weather changing all the time is probably just all in my imagination you know? <laughs> it's probably not real but but we get to talk with with uh david here who is cut he was there in virginia he's about where about an hour from you Hugh? he's an hour south of me he's in the he's in southwest virginia we're in central western virginia in, in lynchburg so uh david and i met a couple of times and so uh we had a cancellation today, so I said, can you come on the show today and share your story? So David Perry is sitting in Roanoke, Virginia, and you're actually representing two land trust organizations. So tell people a little bit about yourself and why is it you do this? Why did you choose to do this for a profession? Sure. Happy to do that. Um, well, my name is, uh, as you said, David Perry. I'm the executive director of the Blue Ridge Land Conservancy and our newly merged partner in uh, Lynchburg, Virginia. Uh, We're in Roanoke, Virginia, and our newly merged partner in Lynchburg, the uh, Central Virginia Land Conservancy. Um, 47 years old, uh, married, two uh, sons, wonderful wife, and uh, educational background. I've got a degree in geography from James Madison University, and then a master's degree in uh, park and resource management from Slippery Rock University. And um, I've been with the Blue Ridge Land Conservancy since 2006, so uh, just about 13, a little over 13 years now, and I've been director of the organization since uh, 2012, so seven years. Um, I guess about half my tenure now has been as executive director. Um, and, uh, you know, land conservancies, the primary goal of the land conservancy is to protect important land um, for important for a variety of reasons, but to protect it from development permanently for the benefit of future generations. So we protect 
um, water, we protect working farmlands, we protect scenic views, uh, wildlife habitat, um, land adjoining uh, areas of national and regional significance such as the Blue Ridge Parkway or the Appalachian Trail, just uh, all sorts of land that is important for whatever reason from an environmental standpoint. And one of the things I love about nonprofit work is that it really gives me the opportunity to help others, to, to make a difference in the world. Um, I have always been blessed uh, throughout my career. I've worked in local government. I've worked for other nonprofits. And I've always been blessed to have the kind of job where I'm, I'm kind of a do-gooder. Um, and I don't... Uh, you know, I don't have to worry about making shareholders an extra five cents on their dividend for the quarter or whatever the case may be. And I also had tremendous freedom to um, help chart the direction of the organization because these tend to be, you know, most nonprofits are smaller organizations. Um, you know, even if you have 20 or 30 employees, you, you still have the opportunity to have a tremendous voice in uh, the way things can work as opposed to working for a much larger organization. So that's probably why I do the work that I do. Um, as far as the outdoors angle, I was a boy out as a kid, you know, growing up in Southwest Virginia, surrounded by tremendous beauty, uh, tremendous amenities. So um, it, uh, it was kind of a natural for me to fall into something environmental. Although um, I think honestly, I'd be very happy doing any kind of work that uh, made the world a, a better place. Well, um, you're in um, Roanoke, Virginia, and um, I think both Lynchburg and Roanoke were built around railroads, and Lynchburg had the, the, the tobacco and, and, of course, the, the river going through here. Um, the, right. the, the Blue Ridge Conservancy and the Central Flor uh, Virginia Conservancy, are they contiguous? Yes, yes. We, we, sort, of, we sort of meet in the middle at, in, in Bedford County, Virginia. More yes, or less, yes. right. So we're neighbors, right? Yeah, and part of that's mountainous and part of it's not. Right, so we go from the, uh, the Blue Ridge Mountains and, and roll off the hill slope down into the, the Piedmont of Virginia and uh, down into the beginning of uh, timber and tobacco country. It's a beautiful place to live and we've certainly enjoyed. We lived south of you for a while in, in, in Blacksburg. Mm -hmm. And then sure. two, two, two years, three months ago, we moved up to Lynchburg. Mm -hmm. And um, it's pretty much, it's very similar, this whole terrain along here. But, right. but what you do is uh, preserve land. Talk about what, what is this that you do? We, you put, people put land in the trust, but what's that about and how does that work? Right, sure, sure. So we work with um, the majority, vast majority are, are, are private landowners, typically, um, our demographic are is, is older uh, folks who own farmland anywhere from maybe you know 50 acres on up to 500 or 600 acres of, of farm and mountain and timberland, and they don't want to see it become something other than what it is. They don't want to see it become uh, overdeveloped and turned into a, uh, a housing subdivision or a strip mall or some kind of a, a you know retail uh, or commercial or industrial. Um, establishment. So we, we use what's called a, a the legal term is a conservation easement. But basically that's just an agreement between us and, and, and the owner of the property 
that spells out sort of an upper cap on development of the property for the future. So we uh, work with the landowner to uh, talk with them about how they'd like to see the land protected. And that uh, comes in a variety of ways. We limit the number of times the land can be subdivided. So we keep large tracts of land together. We limit how many dwellings can be built uh, and typically where those dwellings and maybe outbuildings like garages or farm buildings like barns might be able to go to protect the viewshed of the, the public from roads or, or rivers. Um, it limits um, what kinds of um, timbering in many cases can take place. Some people don't want to touch a tree, which is, is fine. And other people want to maintain the property as active timberland, and that's great too, but we do stipulate that they use best management practices on the property. And basically those are just ways of doing things the right way so we don't end up polluting our waterways as a result of uh, timbering practices that might be, might be damaging. But those are the kinds of restrictions that go on the land. You, you can't accumulate junk on the property. You can't mine or have an open gravel pit on the property. Um, you sort of have to leave it as uh, land that's available for uh, agricultural use or um, for forestal use, wildlife habitat, some kind of rural or agricultural use in the future. And then it's our job once the uh, landowner donates this conservation easement to the Blue Ridge Land Conservancy or the Central Virginia Land Conservancy, and it is a donation, um, it's our job uh, forever to enforce that agreement. So 100 years from now, when some other um, family owns that property, hopefully there will still be a Blue Ridge or a Central Virginia Land Conservancy in place that's enforcing uh, these agreements and helping to ensure that the wishes of the landowner from way back in 2019 are still being carried out in, in, in 2119 and beyond. You were, um, when you spoke last week, you were talking about the, the, the difference in the size of the tracks that are donated. There's a, a nice size where, where we live, but out there where, where Russell is, uh, out in the west, there, there's a big <laughs> difference. And then northeast, when you have metropolitan areas, it's a, there's another difference. So talk about the, the different size of land tracts that are donated. Well, sure. You know, it's, it's all relative, uh, depending on where you live in the United States. And, uh, you know, in, in Virginia, I would say in the southeast, uh, you know, farm tracts these days are probably a couple hundred acres. You might have some uh, commercial operations that are a few thousand acres, but what people typically have is a few hundred acres of, of land. Um, and then when you get into the uh, Northeast, which is sort of where the land trust movement really began, uh, every township might have its own land trust. You know, we, we cover 16 counties in our area, but every small township of 5,000 people may have its own land trust that looks after the community green in that town. And then when you get into an even smaller scale, um, I know, for example, there's a group in the city of Baltimore that protects land for uh, community gardens and that kind of thing. And to them, an eighth of an acre in the middle of the big city is just, you know, it's, it's a vast property. So, you know, you take that in the other direction and, and you head out west and everything gets bigger. It's not just bigger in Texas, it's bigger in Colorado too. Mm -hmm. But they often deal in, in the thousands of acres and the tens of thousands of acres. And so uh, we'll hear about these big, you know, 10, 20,000 acre deals and it, it blows our mind back east and out west. They're sort of like, yeah, that's, that's what we do. <laughs> so, but it's just all about, you know, the, the states are bigger out west, the landscapes are bigger out west, there's fewer people out west, and it, it all scales up. 
well, that small track Atlanta Baltimore might be worth a lot more money than the bigger track somewhere else. As well. well, that's that's very true. Yeah, the the money the money uh, the smaller it gets in the big city, you know, you can have a very small, very expensive track of land. So that's right. So so from where you sit, you're the executive director now. You've just gone undergone a merger with two different um, land trust organizations. Correct. Right. Yeah, so the Central Virginia Land Conservancy uh, was founded about seven years after we were. So we were founded in the mid-90s, and they came along in the early 2000s. And um, we've always uh, worked together uh, cooperatively. They really wanted to take the next uh, step in terms of their the pace and the scale of their land conservation. We've been um, saving a tremendous amount of land in recent years. Uh, just thanks to our fantastic board and our great staff. Um, and the Central Virginia Land Conservancy was very interested in doing the same thing, but just didn't quite know um, what to do to take that next step. And, and, you know, to be honest, it's kind of a daunting task. And I, I don't care what kind of nonprofit work you're in, but whenever you're talking about scaling up from what you're currently doing and making that leap of faith, uh, and they were an all-volunteer organization, so they were looking at, well, what can we do in our spare time in the evenings and weekends, it, it was pretty daunting. And at first I uh, talked with them about doing a, a mentorship type relationship. Um, not that I know everything or do everything perfectly well, but I was willing to share what I, I know and uh, help them to do things uh, like scale up their fundraising, um, bring some more heavy hitters on their, on their board, because you always need to have that kind of uh, give get or, or get off board. Um, Maybe that's not the best phrase, but you need people that can get things done and, and acquire the resources that you need to be successful. And um, we sort of started joking around um, as, as boyfriends and girlfriends do about getting married. And uh, eventually we, we realized that that was maybe the best thing to do is we ought to just merge the organizations. And um, I think a couple of things allowed that merger to take place. One is that the, um, the hang was good. When, when we hung out together as board members and staff members, we all got along. We were all in the same wavelength and everybody had the same goals. And so it was, um, you know, that's kind of a slang term. The, ha the hang was good. Um, so, so that really greased the skids. I, I think um, other things that made the merger make sense was that uh, Roanoke and Lynchburg aren't terribly far apart, even though they are separate communities, uh, they have separate, um, you know, central places with separate airports and um, shopping centers and all hospitals and all those kinds of things. But they're close enough together that we could realize a lot of um, economies of scale without having to duplicate everything for two cities that are about 55 miles apart, so maybe a little over an hour apart um, when you account for stoplights. Um, we have a lot of organizational infrastructure here at the Blue Ridge Land Conservancy in terms of our computer programs that we have to manage things like uh, donors and handling donations and processing donations and managing our portfolio of conserved lands, um, uh, having vehicles and an office and all those kinds of things. And I think what the Central Virginia Land Conservancy brought to the table was a fantastic group of volunteers that really loved land conservation. They were really willing to uh, work hard and help. And so you were able to combine um, people who really wanted to get out there and, and conserve land while we still can, while it's still there, with the uh, organizational, I guess, infrastructure that we can bring to the table. And it just made a lot of sense. It, it allowed us to be able to work in parts of the state where uh, we were being asked to work as the Blue Ridge Land Conservancy. 
and uh, would refer folks to the Central Virginia Land Conservancy, but they just weren't quite ready to take that step and, and be able to hold these permanent conservation agreements. So it you know, allowed us to kind of accomplish some goals that we wanted to do as, as well, which is to better um, better serve the Central Virginia region and, and not let conservation opportunities pass us by. Uh, because, you know, once they're gone, they might be gone forever. So uh, is there, what's the value in taking two organizations like this and making them into one? It would seem like you're combining the best of both, but that doesn't always happen, does it? Well, I think we're combining the best of both. I mean, so far that's been the case. It's only been a, a few months, but uh, I think the positive energy is really carrying over. Um, you know, again, the value nonprofits, uh, and I don't care who you are, how big you are, um, nonprofits always need to be thinking about how can we, how can we do this better? How can we do this more efficiently? And um, when you're in a, a rural part of the state with a few urban hubs that are the, the centers of, of um, money and the centers of activity and that kind of thing, uh, it really makes sense to just try to band together and, um, you know, only being an hour or so apart, um, you know, it just, it just made too much sense not to do it. Um, this wasn't an organization. And again, you know, I, I know when you get out into other parts of the country, you'll have six and seven hour drives like out there in, in Colorado with, with Russell, you know, you, it might take you a while to get from point A to point B here, here in Virginia, we're, we're fairly densely packed, even though it's a rural area. So, um, you know, we, we can, we can have a face-to-face -face meeting with just a short drive, um, while still sort of maintaining the, uh, unique, uh, identities of the different communities. We're continuing to brand separately, so we still have the Blue Ridge Conservancy brand and the Central Virginia Land Conservancy brand because those mm -hmm. are important to those places. And uh, we we like to maintain our separate identities while sort of behind the scenes from a from a uh, land trust governance standpoint, we're realizing a lot of of efficiencies. So that doesn't always happen when organizations merge. So having had that existing relationship and having a non-threatening conversation about that. So, and the benefits of merging. Um, so in, in our journeys, uh, we've done leadership training sessions, we call a symposium in 26 different cities around the country. Done one in Roanoke and one in Lynchburg, as, as a matter of fact. I don't think I knew you then, but we, uh, right. people bring the, the issues they want to address. And the top issue, uh, for most of the geographic areas are leader burnout. There's too much going on. Leaders got too much to do. Right. And, and the burnout rate's pretty severe. Second one is board engagement. And then related to those problems, the third one is um, insufficient funding. So let's talk about from your, your seat, you manage. Now, do you have lots of volunteers that, that work under each of these organizations? Well, we, we do. We, we have a unique situation. Our, our board is still at that point where they're, they're somewhere between a working board and strictly a policy and governance board. So they certainly set policy and, and uh, those kind of things, but they're also great about helping out. We have some board members who um, love to get out in the field with us, with our uh, uh, conservation staff that actually goes onto the properties and either meets with, with landowners to generate new conservation opportunities or uh, monitors our existing conserved properties. So some people really enjoy that aspect of the job. But, you know, um, our, our board is, is very engaged. Um, I think leader uh, and staff burnout is a very real thing. And we're, we were dealing with that even before the merger. Um, one thing that we've been very cautious to do is attach some funding streams to 
um, this this merger. We're also uh, starting up a. Uh, it's not a merger. It's sort of it's, it's it's a startup operation to our south, which will engage uh, four new counties where there's not a private nonprofit land trust like we are, um, which will be part of our organization, but again branded separately as the Southern Virginia Land Conservancy. And we've just hired our first employee down there. But both of these operations. Um, the, the merger for Lynchburg, we received a grant from the Appalachian Trail Conservancy because a, a long stretch of the Appalachian Trail runs along the edge of that central Virginia area. And that will help us uh, sort of pull ourselves up by our bootstraps for the first year or two um, as far as having staff. And then the same thing with the, uh, our initiative to our south with the Southern Virginia Land Conservancy, also have a, a grant there from the Virginia Environmental Endowment which has enabled us to hire our first employee and, and work out of that, that area. So we didn't want to take this on and uh, continue to overburden our staff. We wanted to uh, expand into these areas and hire staff to be able to help um, carry some of that load. And, uh, you know, we, we talk about drive times. Now, it is only maybe an hour, an hour and 15 minutes from Roanoke to Lynchburg. Um, but, of course, we go much farther out into the country than, than Roanoke and Lynchburg. So sometimes you can spend two hours in the car even before you arrive on a rural property that you might want to uh, conserve or talk to the landowner. And you can spend therefore, you know, half your day, four hours uh, going there and back. Um, and by hiring employees to work in various locations, because our, our employees won't work out of the Roanoke office, the new ones we've hired, they're, they're gonna be working remotely. Um, it will enable them to cut that drive time uh, out of the equation so they can, if there is a landowner in the, in the Lynchburg area, it might be 45 minutes away for them as opposed to two hours for us or to our south, you know, the same situation. They, they can cut the whole trip from Roanoke just to get to Southern Virginia and then from there to go to where they need to go. Um, and uh, what was the uh, additional piece? We talked about land or staff burnout and... Well, um, board empowerment, uh, you know, how do we... Uh, and you, you made an interesting observation there um, uh, governance and policy mm -hmm. and active board. How would you describe an active board? How would I describe an active board? Well, I think um, when, when people, we've been very fortunate to have uh, people that have, have come on our board and for the most part, they don't do it to fulfill some kind of professional obligation because their accounting firm wants them to be involved in the community or um, for whatever reason, but they, they come on board because they really value our, our mission. And we and they, they sort of catch the bug from the other board members, their energy and their excitement. Um, and we've been you know, able, to, able to keep that rolling as, as the board turns over over the years. But if you wanna have an engaged board, I really think you have to give them something to do and you really have to um, keep them involved in the decision-making process. Um, staff can generate a lot of ideas and, and you know and this this merger uh, for example was uh, a staff idea um, and the expansion into southern Virginia was a staff idea but then you go and take that and you go to um, maybe some of your confidants on the board or some of the board members that have been there for a while and have some of the board history and say what do you think about this um, I see a need I see an area in which we can contribute more I see you know a way that we can expand the mission of the organization and here's some ways I think we could fund it and here's some ways I think we could make it work and you know you might do that over a, a beer or a cup of coffee or over lunch and um, you know if you receive a positive reception from the folks whose opinion you trust and who know the organization well then you can say well 
you know, is there a committee that we need to take this to? Is, uh, do we need to take this to the executive committee and say, hey, we've got this crazy idea. What do you think about this? But, you know, involving your board from, from day one and not trying to ram things down their throat, not trying to yes. um, coerce or, or, or demand that anyone do anything. And then I think once everybody has a chance for opportunity or an opportunity for input and involvement and, uh, you know, they, they may have, you know, a better way to accomplish the same goal um, that you have. And so you have to be very open to the con concept and possibility that there's more than one right way to do things. Um, but that's really how we've tried to do it is to start small with those conversations at, over a cup of coffee. And then if the ideas gain traction, we, we sort of take it from there. We've had other ideas where we've explored them and, and said, well, this is not going to work. And we just set that aside for the time being. So that's really good wisdom. Um, Russell uh, has been very polite in the background. He's, he's got some good <laughs> questions that he's formulating. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plug in my power while he's interviewing you. And he's got some really good questions. Russell, you want to have a go at it? Certainly. Well, thank you very much, David, for, for joining us here. Absolutely. And, and uh, uh, you've got a great portfolio. I was just looking at the math there. I was looking at the portfolio of properties you have. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, I was just kind of curious because you've got a good footprint. Uh, how many acres right now that uh, that your group has under management? Sure, um, about twenty-two thousand um, acres under um, management. And you know, uh, not many people know what an acre is, but it's about a football field. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know how many people can visualize twenty-two thousand football fields, but um, it's maybe the size of a couple of small small size cities put together, um, but it's a lot of land. It, it's spread out. Um, the biggest chunk of that is a beautiful recreational area we have here outside of Roanoke, uh, Carvin's Cove Natural Reserve, and that's about 11,000 acres. So we've got um, two uh, agreements there with the city of Roanoke, Virginia to protect 11,000 acres. And our, our other, um, the remainder of our 75 agreements that we have that protect the other 11,000 acres are much smaller pieces of property spread all over the place. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, yeah, merger is an almost unused growth strategy for nonprofits, mm -hmm. but it's just made so much sense for you. Was this mm -hmm. something that you kind of had on the radar uh, when you were putting things together? Or did it just occur to you out of that first synergy that, hey, you know what, we could probably make this work by, by merging and, and uh, merger as a strategy is something that can mm -hmm. help us preserve more resources. Right. Well, you know, um, I really believe in, in doing land conservation uh, the right way, although Lord knows we make mistakes um, and learn, try to learn from them. But but by the right way, I mean, I don't mean the mistake-free way, but I mean, um, mm -hmm. just in your, you're taking the right approach. And that's really by doing it at the grassroots level and involving the communities in which you work. Uh, one thing we didn't want to do is ride in from the quote-unquote big city of Roanoke. You know, I think our tallest building is about 20 stories. So, mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, ride in from the big city of Roanoke and tell the people in the rural areas surrounding us how they needed to do things and then ride back to the city before it got dark, you know, and, and go back to our, our houses in town. So when we were asked to come into the Lynchburg area and, and work with the Central Virginia Land Conservancy um, and maybe conserve some properties because they weren't quite ready to take that step yet, or to come into Southside Virginia where there was no private nonprofit organization doing land conservation, um, 
I wanted to really start it from the, the ground level and involve people from the community that had a passion for the environment, a passion for the outdoors, and get their input. Um, so I've spent a lot of time the past few months uh, sort of riding the circuit. Um, I know Hugh mentioned that I came and spoke to the uh, Morning Rotary Club in, in Lynchburg, and that's been one of many meetings that I've had with community leaders. Uh, you know, the Chamber of Commerce folks and the, the business community and um, people that are involved in the outdoors and the environment with other organizations, just really getting to know uh, who's who and who I should be talking to and um, looking at what names keep popping up over and over and over again. And when that happens, you know that person's probably somebody that you really need to go see. So, um, you know, that is what I think drove um, the merger and then the, the startup process as well, is just that we wanted to go about it a, a certain way. Um, and, it, and it did not involve, you know, anything top down. I think we wanted it to come from the, the bottom up. You know, we've experienced that. We, you were talking a little bit about time spent in the car. And, you know, you can <laughs> spend a lot of time here. I've been here in, in the Denver area for about mm -hmm. 12 years. Okay. And you can spend a lot of time in the car without covering a great deal of distance That's right. here. Especially in Denver, out, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I lived out east for quite a while. I was up in northern Maine. And even when you mm -hmm. think about a state that's as rural as Maine, mm -hmm. we were having discussions 20 years ago about keeping sprawl from, from uh, running amok and going sure. out of control. And uh, But in Virginia, which is large, it's beautiful. I've got some friends that live there, but mm -hmm. uh, like a lot of other places, and especially in parts there, there's a, a great deal of development and commercialization and those right. types of things going on. Right. How has that in, uh, uh, increased the pressure on uh, people of conscience down there to mm -hmm. try to maintain some green spaces? Uh, that, that's probably created some, uh, mm -hmm. some extra challenges that were not there when you started. Well, I think that's very true. And, and you know, where we've seen uh, the biggest growth in Virginia, certainly in the Washington, D.C. suburbs, northern Virginia, and in the upper Virginia Piedmont. Um, and, you know, it's one of the ironies of, of the environmental movement is sometimes you make the most progress from an environmental standpoint when you have the, the greatest environmental tragedies taking place because it really opens people's eyes. When everything looks pretty and green and, and healthy, um, everybody assumes it'll always remain that way. But when people be, begin to drive by uh, a housing development that they remember used to be a farm when they were a kid, or they used to, you know, take uh, uh, horse horseback riding lessons up there when they were a kid, and suddenly now it's a, it's a, you know, nothing but a, a Wally World or whatever uh, the case may be. Um, people people take notice, and so uh, in some of the most uh, rapidly developing counties in Virginia, we also have some of the uh, greatest amounts of conservation work being being done because people do see what they're losing and they want to hang on to it. Um, but, you're, but you're right, I mean, I mean it's really taking place uh, in, in everything from, again, those tremendously highly populated uh, Washington DC suburbs down to small towns because um, everybody wants to get that big suburban house with the SUV parked outside and uh, the, the big sprawling yard and to attend the suburban schools and all those kinds of things. Um, and, and, and that's all great until we have another recession and, and the price of gas is $5 a gallon and people realize that's maybe not the best idea. Um, so I think, you know, 
almost any community of any size in Virginia with the exception of a few places. Um, and it's probably true around the country too. We're all, we're all feeling this um, pressure to protect uh, the wild places and the important rural places in America. Um, again, as, as Ed Abbey said, while we still can, while it's still there, that's sort of my, my mantra, while we kill, still can and while it's still there. Talk a little bit about some of the some of the landowners. You probably got a unique blend of landowners, but mm-hmm. who are the folks that are going to be more likely to be interested in taking some of their land and conserving it? Sure, sure. Well, typically, you know, our typical land owning family that we work with is probably older. Uh, might be a married couple that have lived on the land for quite some time. Um, they're reaching the age in their life where they're thinking about their will. They're thinking about what's, you know, what am I going to leave my children? Mm-hmm. Um, they have questions about whether or not the kids would ever want to come back and live on the farm. The mm-hmm. kids have probably all gone off and gone to the big city and are, are working, um, you know, in, in, a, in a major metro area somewhere. So they have a lot of questions about what's going to happen to the land that they love. Um, and, you know, most cases has been in the family for a, a long time. You know, maybe, I mean, in some cases, people have owned the land for hundreds of years in, in the same family. Um, in other cases, they may have moved down from the Northeast or up from Charlotte or somewhere, and they retired in Virginia and, and bought their gentleman's farm or their gentlewoman's farm, and they, they've got a few cows out front, and have really fallen in love with the place in, in a 20-year period of time, and, and they don't want it to be um, you know, taken out of that rural setting and turned into something else either. But you know, typically, again, an, an, an older couple who's looking to ensure that they can rest easy at night knowing that um, when they pass, the kids aren't going to carve up the property for the money in split town. <laughs> and we've had people tell us that, you know, they, um, a little bit cynical, but a little bit, uh, you know, there's always a grain of truth in there. They just say, I don't, I don't trust my kids when I'm gone. I want to make sure that this, the farm stays the farm and the family can always come back to it and have it as a place to enjoy. Well, a lot of younger people are very conscious and very aware of what's mm-hmm. taking place with the environment around them. So I, I'd imagine that you're starting to see younger landowners and other folks that are mm-hmm. certainly in your volunteer base and in getting messaging out. Sure. Uh, what would yeah. be the best way? Because, you know, there are conservancies everywhere, different land use organizations that uh, I don't know that many people know uh, a lot about conservancies and this idea of uh, collaborating with people in their area to preserve mm-hmm. the character of of the community they live in. So right. talk a little bit about how you educate people sure. uh, who may not even know that this is available and how you go about making it, uh, making the process of working with them seamless so that uh, they don't feel like they're jumping through a lot of hoops that are gonna be difficult to navigate. Right, right. Yeah, I, you know, I think that's a, a nationwide problem is awareness of the land conservation movement. Um, the land conservation movement solves so many problems. You know, land solves so many problems, mental health issues, uh, sources for local food, uh, climate change, you know, trees suck up carbon like there's no tomorrow. That's a wonderful solution in helping to mitigate climate change. And the Land Trust Alliance, which is sort of our national uh, professional organization, national advocacy organization, estimates that most Americans live with just within just a few miles of conserved property and, and don't know it. Um, so we as a national movement are trying to make ourselves more relevant, more, more well-known. Um, I think that's an excellent point you bring up. 
And uh, we have a, an approach that we call community conservation, which the whole goal of it is, you know, it's not rocket science. You, you involve the community in the decision-making process. You find out what's important to the community. Um, you have events out on uh, conserved properties. We do a lot of hikes. We do a lot of programs where we get people out onto conserved land and they have a great time in, in the woods or hiking to the top of a mountain. And it's one that they can't get to usually because it's on private property. It's not on the Appalachian Trail or somewhere. So we give them, this is, we say this is your one chance this year to, to bag this peak because it's a private landowner and we have permission for Saturday only to, to hike it. Um, so, and as a nonprofit, you, you can never stop promoting yourself. Uh, the, uh, the airwaves, the internet space is, is so congested um, and people's lives are full of so many things that you just have to constantly promote yourself and hope that through, I think, tenacity, you rise to the top uh, of people's awareness level. Um, you know, you made another point as well and asked me to speak about it is, you know, landowners may have some idea of what, um, you know, conserving their land means, but they're not real familiar with it. You know, it's, it's something that they'll probably only do one time their entire life. You know, we, we might do, um, you know, 10 or 20 of these agreements a year, and they'll do one in the, you know, 80 years they're, they're walking this planet. So it's something that we, we struggle with to make it a seamless process. There are a lot of moving parts and we, you know, we struggle to implement the best procedures uh, to track those moving parts. There are attorneys involved and there are real estate appraisers involved and there are sometimes accountants involved and surveyors involved and all kinds of different folks and uh, government is sometimes involved with government conservation programs. So making it a seamless process is, um, is difficult. And I think it just goes back to, you know, I don't think any nonprofit really is as successful as they could be if they're not bringing in partners and bringing in experts uh, to, be, um, to be part of the process. You know, we don't know everything. Uh, so, we'll, so if someone, let's say, uh, has to fence cattle out of their stream so that the cows don't stand around and do what cows like to do uh, in the water, which of course pollutes the water, um, you know, we'll bring in our partners from the uh, U.S. government's Natural Resource Conservation Service or the local soil and water conservation districts uh, here in Virginia. And other states have similar uh, uh, organizations at the state level. But they know all about, uh, you know, fencing and, and digging wells and putting in waters for the cattle and, and keeping them out of the stream, just as, a, as an example. So, again, building that partnership um, so that um, we don't have those hiccups along the way and we try to you know, smooth those out for the landowners. Uh, there's also organizations in Virginia and you know, private individuals or private companies that will uh, sort of, their whole job is to assist the landowner with the process from the beginning to the end. You know, we're, we're really the, uh, the end recipient of the product, the, the conserved property. Um, you know, we don't own it, but we have that perpetual forever obligation to ensure that the property remains protected. So we're, we're sort of at the end of the line and a lot of stuff has to happen where that landowner has to work with other people besides us to where they get to the point of signing on the dotted line with the Blue Ridge or the Central Virginia Land Conservancy. I, I'm just amazed at how much I don't know about this topic as we're talking. <laughs> and uh, Russ always asks really in, in interesting questions, but introspective questions that mm -hmm. help me think about Structure. So let, let me do a follow-on to where we were before. Um, the, the second and third part of the struggles for all nonprofits that I see in one form or another is mm -hmm. having this continuous funding stream. 
but before we do, I want to go get a little bit. We have about ten minutes left in the in the time, twelve minutes. I wanted to ask you. You've got two boards and then a combined board, so you've got mm-hmm. you got a whole lot of board things going on. How how do you see yourself? Um, and then you talked about an executive committee. So there's lots of different models for boards out there. Some some have executive teams, some don't. Uh, some have advisory boards, some have advisors, some have advisory councils. Um, there's lots of different kinds of entities. Some have volunteers, some have servant leaders. You know, there's all kinds of configurations of how we we put people to work. So in in your journey. What's ahead for you in, let's call it the envelope is board capacity building. How mm-hmm. do you see raising the capacity of the two boards? Do you ever see a full board merger? And what are the challenges in, in helping the board get on, on board with what needs to be done and, and equip themselves, I guess, is, is the basic question. Right, right. Yeah, so we are working through our, our governance model right now. Where I think I see ourselves heading is that we'll have um, – one 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 board, one legal board for the entity, and then we'll have standing committees for our our three um, operating bodies: the Blue Ridge Land Conservancy, the Central Virginia, and then the Southern Virginia Land Conservancy. And I think certain powers will remain at the overall upper board level, and certain uh, authorities will be uh, divested to the standing committees, which will have uh, you know uh, charge of those three different parts of of the operation. Um, and, you know, again, uh, gosh, you know, board development is just like fundraising. You have to be continually thinking about, um, you know, who's, who's coming on the board next, who's going off the board next. Uh, if, I, if I meet someone, uh, you know, always have your, your, your spider sense up for would they make a good board member. Um, it's, it's, it's something that's just a continual year-round process and goes on for much, a much longer part of the year than that brief window of time when you have a nominating committee meet. Um, so I, I think it's really our, our challenge uh, in the areas that we're moving into um, in our the two areas that we've either started up and merged with to get to know the communities and start to identify those folks that would um, that would make good board members. Um, and again, you know, the, the key to keeping them engaged is just involving them in the decision-making process and um, giving them something to, to do, putting them on a committee, asking them if they'll take on certain roles. Um, because it's it's easy as human beings to say, well, yeah, I'm on that board, but they don't ask me to do much, and we don't really do a whole lot. And you kind of fade into the background, and you start missing meetings and that kind of thing. But when you've when you've got someone who's got a job for you, and people are asking your opinion, or people are asking you to come out and and walk a property with them on a nice spring day, um, it really boosts your level of uh, of obligation and, and commitment to that to that board. Well, there's a leadership mindset that, that people joined it because they have a passion for it and they want to do something. Right. <laughs> our job is to put them to work and maybe get out of their way. It, well, exactly. Yeah, that's one of the best things you can do as a leader is know when to get out of the way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and when to, when to step in, but also to right. have some accountability tracks. So I'm yes. amazed how many nonprofit leaders don't want to ask anybody, oh, they're volunteers. We don't want to bother them. They're busy. Right. And I think it's a false narrative that we, we tell ourselves. Right. Well, they'll, they'll tell you when they're too busy. They'll, they'll say, I, I just can't, I've got too much going on. Um, you know, I think you need to be sensitive. Some, some people might not. So you, have, you always have to be sensitive to how much you're burdening someone. But generally I found if folks are too busy to do something, they'll, they'll tell you, no, they, they appreciate an honest ask. And again, it's an ask. It's not a, 
meet me here at this time period. You know, it's always, uh, you know, Bob or Sue or whoever it may be. I, I really appreciate your time. I love what you're doing with this. Would you be able to help me out on this day or, or what have you? Um, always coming to it from a position of appreciation for what they're doing and, and recognizing that they're giving of their time. Um, and then being very cognizant that, you know, if they say um, no, or if they start to indicate that they might be a little burned out, you'll need to maybe look at someone else. <laughs> and give we them tend to ask the people that will do it to do everything and then ignore the others. And we get a few people that burn out and then, you know, right. that doesn't work. So is it, whose job is it? You said there's a nominating process. Is there a nominating committee in your organization? There is, right. Yeah. And, and they tend to meet, um, you know, in, in the spring and, and, so, you know, every, before the new budget year, you're going to be looking at, you know, bringing on your new board members, replacing old board members and, and you know, nailing down your budget for the coming year and that kind of thing. So that's really a, a springtime formal process for us, but it goes on year round. Um, you know, we'll, we'll talk with people about coming on our board years in advance. And we've actually shortened our board terms as well uh, because people don't want that um, obligation to feel like they're going to get on a board and never, never get off. So we used to do... Uh, Three consecutive three-year terms was the most you can do, and it's gone to three consecutive two-year terms. And uh, we went to a president and president-elect model, so no one ever felt like they had to set in the, the, the chief chair of responsibility for more than one year. And that seemed, that seemed to work out pretty well for us as well. So it's, it's president-elect, president, and past president? Is a three-year? Uh, we, we have not done a past president. Um, we, we could, we just have chosen not to, but that certainly works in lots of organizations. Yeah. yeah. Um, it does. So speak for a minute. I'm going to let Russ have another question before we run out of time, but okay. you're present with people. One of the, one of the uphill battles is keeping an organization funded. Now mm -hmm. you, you have liabilities with all these properties. You have right. operational costs. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's, a, there's a budget you have to feed. People just don't right. give you land and it's happy, happy thereafter. Right, right. <laughs> so so um, um, what is your model for, do you have a development person? Is that part of your job? How do you, how do you present the need and, and what percent comes from individual donors? And do you have grants or, or federal subsidies or what else do you get? Yeah, so we have a variety of revenue streams. Um, you know, most of our revenue comes from just individual donations, uh, business sponsorships. We have a, one fundraiser dinner a year, but um, we used to rely on a, on a very large grant from an out-of-state foundation that a board member long ago had, had brought in with some connections that he had from a previous life. And uh, we lost that grant during the Great Recession and 25% of our budget went away <laughs> overnight. Um, that was about 2007 or eight. And so one of the things we tried to do is diversify, diversify, diversify. So we don't rely on any one revenue stream. Um, and you know, if you're a nonprofit, you have to continually fundraise. You have to continually ask. Um, we do uh, all kinds of different uh, giving programs from purchasing mailing lists um, to, uh, you know, large donor solicitations to uh, gifts and wills. Uh, we've had a lot of success recently with, with donated vehicles, which, you know, NPR has been advertising on the radio for, for years. So um, you... I think from a, and, and from the standpoint of relaying that to the board, um, you know, you ex as a staff member, explain what the need is, ex explain how much you need, and then get that board buy-in. And, you know, again, starting with those small conversations and said, you know, if we could raise $50,000, we, we, we could do this. And 
you know, it, it starts off as a daunting goal. And then before you know it, you, you may not raise 50,000 the first year, but by the time you've raised 10 and then 35 and then 45, that 50 is suddenly something that seems like it's, you know, a pretty sure thing every year. Um, so you, you just build up to it. Great. Russ, you got a short question that we can handle um, briefly here before we go into the sponsor moment. I do. You know, I was thinking in terms of types of land out there and you're having conversations with people all around the country. Mm-hmm. Is there a type of, of uh, property that is we're in danger of losing? Are, are there easements that we really need more of uh, right now? Right. Well, you know, I would say every community is, is unique. Um, and so that's, it's hard to answer that from a, from a nationwide perspective. But I think um, I, I, would, I would throw out two broad types of property. Um, any kind of land we can save that helps to mitigate climate change um, is probably going to be an important property to save. And there's lots of factors that make a land good for mitigating climate change. Um, the Nature Conservancy has some great resources online to help identify those properties. The other thing is, uh, you know, we're in the midst of a, a man, a human caused um, extinction of species. And so any kind of properties that help to maintain, conserve animal habitat, especially species, for species that are, are on the brink, I think no matter where you are in America, that would be an important piece of, of land to protect as well. And if I were to throw out a third, I'd say land that people can enjoy. People are only going to protect what they enjoy and, and care about. And um, if they have a love in their heart for a certain property, um, you know, and you're able to help foster that, then that's something you ought to work on as well. Yeah, going back to places I used to live and looking for the vacant land that used to be there when I grew up, and it, it's you know, a bunch of high-rise or a bunch of apartments or whatever. Right, it's right. Kind of a disappointment, that, you know, paved over the creek or whatever it was. So mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's inspiring. I, I, I do want to encourage people. We, we have a wide variety of listeners, most of whom are... Uh, <coughs> in a seat like you're in and um and are facing all the challenges you talk about but you're very eloquent about the value of what you do and i think the lesson i'd encourage other other nonprofit leaders to take away is to talk about the value that you bring to the world right. to people right. to the communities and is if you're connected with a corporation uh we we lost some corporate support for nonprofits during the recession which hasn't come back but corporations are profitable. So those that are interested in the triple bottom line, it's, it's, it's people, mm-hmm. a planet, mm-hmm. and it's then the profit. Right. And so the, the, the planet piece would be a land conservancy like that when, when we're talking to. The people mm-hmm. part is what, what, non, what Center of Original Leadership Foundation does. It, it helps the people part of all the nonprofits because you, you really couldn't do this without the people around you. And all the right. different different people that you talk about, it really takes people focused on an end result together and being engaged together. So I really appreciate the part you said that you want to include the board in decision making. Right. Uh, so we're our sponsor of this moment is is WordSpread, and um, as um, as we're talking today, WordSpread is preparing uh, a mailing for the Lynchburg mm-hmm. Symphony. We stay in touch with our tribe because there's the right message to the right person in a right rhythm. So there's a regular rhythm that people stay informed about how we're using their money. So we have donors that that contribute to your cause. It's important to thank them. It's also important to stay in touch with them on a regular basis and saying, this is is what we're accomplishing. So Bill Gilmer 
and his team at WordSprint, he's down toward your neck of the woods, David. Mm-hmm. It um, has a program that they've researched, two and a half million email campaigns, 20 years. They know this is top of mind marketing and it's mm-hmm. mail in somebody's hand. You can partner mm-hmm. with an email, which is very effective, but people have nonprofit performance magazine in their hand. Mm-hmm. And so they read it. If you send them an email before they get it, say, Hey, Dave, look at the, look at page 13. There's an article I think you're interested in. Mm-hmm. And so when you get it on your desk the next day, you're saying, Oh, I'm, this is the one he was talking about. So right. wordsprint.com, Bill Gilmer and his team are brilliant at creating campaigns. And Lynchburg Symphony has a list of patrons. We're on it. Uh, Center Vision Leadership Foundation has a list of donors and supporters and partners. We're on it. We send out our mail on a regular basis. And Bill Gilmer is the go-to uh, person to do that. Wordsprint.com. He's a, one of our ongoing sponsors for nonprofit performance and for Center Vision and how we stay in touch with leaders. So we bring you these free opportunities, these free learning opportunities, uh, because we have sponsors that support us and enable us to bring content to you. So as we as we end this before uh, Russell signs off, um, Dave, what's a thought that you would like to leave uh, other nonprofit leaders who are working in, and you've been through some transitions in your upgrading systems and you're empowering boards and you're reviewing your policies. What What tips would you have for other nonprofit leaders uh, regardless of what they're doing, what kind of advice would you like to leave with people? Gosh, I think at the present moment is um, don't let fear rule your decision-making process. <laughs> um, there's a, a lot of reasons I, I would say that, but I, I think um, that, that's probably true in life, not just in the nonprofit world. But um, if you're if you're doing something or you're not doing something because you're afraid of what might happen, then you really ought to take a second look and determine your your real motivations there. Um, do you really think it's a good idea, or is or a bad idea, or are you uh, afraid of the the consequences? Um, are you afraid of failure? Um, you know, failure is the, is the great tool. Um, that failure is also known as experience and. Um, you're not an experienced leader unless you have, you know, completely fallen off the horse, gotten gravel in your knees and bumped your head and then learned from the mistake and gotten back on. That's it. Life begins at the edge of your comfort zone. That's right. Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate you spending some time with us. And uh, for folks that want more information, visit the Blue Ridge Land Conservancy website. And they have a saving land newsletter that would Mm -hmm. be good for you to read. Anywhere in the country that you are, you can get that newsletter. You can call Dave. There's a place for you to call him, phone number and email to reach out. And he can probably put you in touch with people in your area who are doing this work. We are here every Tuesday afternoon on the Nonprofit Exchange at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Mm -hmm. Join us at that time. If you can't join us, don't worry, because this podcast is available on both iTunes and Stitcher, and these videos are available on our YouTube channel. So you can subscribe to the Leadership. YouTube channel. You can find us at centervisionleadership.org. We've got all kinds of cool tools, resources, 
and they're going to be expanding in 2020. So keep making the difference that you make. And until this time next week, we'll be looking forward to seeing you. Keep doing all the wonderful work you're doing. So, so long for now. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.